0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. I feel like Exodus is like speeding by. Like It's like we, we had a great time with Genesis. We hung out with Yosef. We looked at all these wonderful pieces of text and um, and had great conversation. And then it just feels like Exodus is just like, why and why like we didn't Moshe didn't even get born for us this year. Like boom, there's Moses. Boom. He has a job. Boom. He's working for God. Boom. He's a prop. So it just kind of feels like, and now we're at the 10th 10th plague and they're getting, they're going to get ready to leave Egypt. It's like, wait, what? Okay. So um, to remind us, Moshe was born. Moshe was raised in the palace. Moshe was found by Pharaoh's daughter because he was supposed to be drowned in the Nile. Moshe's rescued. Moshe becomes a fugitive because he doesn't like the injustice of a taskmaster beating a Hebrew. Moshe flees. Moshe goes to Midian. Moshe marries Sephora. Moshe uh, becomes then the son-in-law of the high priest of Midian, of Yitro, his father-in-law. And then he's, he's taking care of Yitro's sheep when he sees a bush on fire that isn't being consumed. He understands this to be some kind of a wonder, some kind of a miracle, if you will. That's our language, not Moshe's language. It's a sign something's going on here. He has the curiosity and the patience and the courage to turn and look and really investigate. And that's when angel of God calls to him out of the snet, out of the bush and commissions him to go to Pharaoh to free the Israelite people saying, your ancestors knew me as El Shaddai. I am the God of your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yudhei, heh vav um So this is, we don't know, but but I like to think, as I told you last time, that, um, that this is when Moshe discovers that he is a Hebrew, that his ancestors are, in fact, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, and that this God is the God uh, that was his ancestor's God, and he is being called into relationship and being commissioned uh, to, for service to that God. And then, um, of course, we have Moshe and and Aharon, his brother. They go to Egypt and they start the whole drama of the demands for the Israelites to go. (laughs) Jody, this is the Reader's Digest summary. Exactly. So articulate. Um, And so they they go and they say they want to worship and they want to take everybody and worship in the desert for a three-day festival. And Pharaoh says, that's fine. You leave your little ones here. Well, Moshe's not stupid, knows that this is a way for Pharaoh to prevent them from actually leaving. And so he says, no, everybody goes or else. And so we have the drama unfold of the plagues. We get three sets of three plagues for a total of nine. And then the coup de grace is, of course, a standalone. Carol Kleinman's going to love it. The standalone plague of the slaying of the firstborn. Yeah, I knew it. Okay, so... Um, So this is we are now at the at the at the height of the drama. We are at the moment uh, of what's going to be the 10th plague. The the two plagues before this for Egypt are really about stopping Egyptian movement. It's there's complete darkness, but there's light in the Israelite homes. The rabbis have a lot to say about that, as you might imagine. How does that happen? What's with that? um and then uh and then we're going to read now that uh that we get two things we're going to get two really important things well three important things in this section of this parsha because remember we divide every parsha into thirds we read the first third of this parsha last year we're reading the middle third next year we read the last third if you're interested in more of the drama i invite you to listen to the podcasts of the last couple of years of the last few parshiot, So you can really get a sense of what happened that we've skipped over because we only read a third of the Parsha. And even that takes us oftentimes over an hour. All right. So what's gonna happen in this week's Parsha is we get the slaying of the firstborn of Egypt. This of course is when Pharaoh kicks them out. This is what makes Pharaoh decide, get rid of them. His courtiers have been pushing him on before now. They've been saying this is suicide. These people, you need to get rid of them. Don't you understand? Egypt is already lost. The officials of the Republican Party are saying to Pharaoh, you are maniacally committed to a path of destruction for Egypt. Stop it. But he does not. Um, And so we get the disaster, the absolute disaster of all this unnecessary death unnecessary death because Pharaoh's paying attention in the wrong places and paying attention to his power and his reputation and all of that. Imagine that. Could you imagine that happening in the real world? Um, Torah is so crazy, isn't it? Torah is just so out there. Um, so busy paying attention to his reputation and his power and how he looks and how he appears that he winds up um, killing a lot of Egyptians that, that didn't have to die. Innocent people that did not have to die. So I know it's out there, but we're just going to pretend that such a thing could happen. So he, um, so that's what's going on with the 10th plague. Then we get the commandment about the Paschal lamb. Aviva Zornberg spends a lot of time on this fact that they are getting the commandment to eat the Paschal lamb, Before God has psacht, before before God has leapt over those houses, they get told about the Pesach, about the Paschal Lamb. And why? Because I jumped over your houses. But it hasn't happened yet. So they're getting this commandment about Pesach when when that hasn't happened. So Aviva Zornberg has a lot to say about that. We'll see if we can get to any of it. And and then we get the calendar. This is the first month for you. And the rabbis want to say, this is the first collective commandment that the Jewish people get. This is the first collective commandment on the Israelites. This is the first of months to you. And then we get a little bit about about this idea of the calendar. Um, and so, uh, for so, marking Pesach as the first month of the year, Nisan, the spring, as the first month of the year, uh, and, and that they are then to follow that calendar, meaning this is the beginning of a whole new reality, people. You Israelites are now gonna mark time by this event. By your leaving Egypt, by your leaving slavery, by me, God, delivering you from slavery, this will now be the beginning of new time for you. It's a whole new ballgame. I created the universe. That is what it is. Shabbat just kind of happens. But now y'all will count your lunar months beginning with this event, beginning with this Month in which this event happened. All right, that's just some context for you. Let's look at the text. So here we are, the beginning of our, our second triennial reading. Moshe says, "Koamar Yirhevavhe." Thus says Yirhevavhe, "Kachatzot Halaila." Around midnight, "Ani Mitzrayim." I will go out in the midst of Egypt. And all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sits on his throne, to the the firstborn of the slave woman that is uh, dealing with the millstone and all the firstborn of the cattle, like of the beasts. And there will be a tsa'aka gedola. Usually we know a tsa'aka is from the people who are oppressed and marginalized. Y'all made Israel cry out with a tsa'aka gedola and wouldn't listen and wouldn't let them go. Then guess what's going to happen to you? A tsa'aka is going to come from Egypt. In all the land of Egypt, um, such as never been heard before and won't again uh, ever be heard but not a dog will snarl at any of the israelites at man or beast in order that you may know that yhdvve makes a distinction between mitraim uven israel between egypt and israel and often pharaoh is called Mitzrayim, right like you um, the the leader of the country is is kind of the symbol of the country so both both the people of Egypt and the people of Israel, but also between God makes a distinction between Pharaoh and Israel, right? So the descendants of Israel. Then all of these courtiers of yours shall come down to me and bow low to me saying, depart you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will depart. And he left Pharaoh's presence in hot anger. So all of this uh, that we see here, this is Moshe talking to Pharaoh. Moshe is telling Pharaoh what's gonna happen here, right? And so he turns on his heel and the af with flared nostrils, he leaves uh, Pharaoh's presence. And God said to Moses, Lo Yishma Alechem guess what? I know this is going to come as a shock to you, but Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. I'm in order that my marvels will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moshe and Aaron had performed all of these marvels before Pharaoh, but Yotei Vavhe stiffened the heart of Pharaoh so that he would not let the Israelites go from his land. Yes, Carol Kleinman, it's okay. We can have a conversation about the complications of this theology. Absolutely. We can have that conversation. All right. But I want to push on a little bit more on the text so we can decide where we want to hang out uh, with the text. So, Mo- So God says to Moshe and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first uh, of the months of the year for you. Speak to the whole community of Israel and say that on the 10th of this month, each of them shall take a lamb to a family, a lamb to a household. If the household's too small for a lamb, let him share one with the neighbor who dwells nearby in proportion to the number of persons you shall contribute for the lamb according to what each household will eat. Your lamb shall be without blemish because it's a sacrifice. A yearling male, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep watch over it until the 14th day. So you tie it up in the backyard for four days. We've Lots of podcast time was spent on this in a couple of previous years, if you remember. This idea of taking it on the 10th day, tying it up in the back. So it's very public that this Israelite household is opting in. This this Israelite household is taking a god of Egypt. The ram was a god of Egypt, taking a a sheep and tying it up in the backyard. And then, of course, we know the evening of the 14th, it's going to be slaughtered. They're all going to be slaughtered at the same time. We've we've referenced the movie Silence of the Lambs, imagining what that sound would be like all across Israelite areas of Egypt. And then the slaying of the firstborn, there's all the howling coming from the houses of the Egyptians. It is a night of terror, this 14th. You will take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they are to eat it. They're to take the blood, put it on the doorposts of the house. They shall eat the flesh that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. Sound a bit familiar to anybody? Do not eat of it cooked in any way with water, but roasted head, legs, and entrails over the fire. This is a a, presaging of a foreshadowing of how sacrifice is going to happen in the temple. You shall not leave any of it over until morning. If so, you shall burn it, right? This is the the same with a lot of the sacrifices in the temple. You don't leave it over till morning. It's a sacred festival and feast that night you finish it and anything left is not a bologna sandwich. You don't have a steak sandwich the next day with your special sacrifice. You, you burn it, right? It's, this is not something you take as leftovers, um, in Tupperware on your journey uh, out of Egypt. This is how you shall eat it. So this, they're they're in their house. They're slaves in Egypt. There's all this drama going on with all these plagues, and now they're told this is how you're going to eat it. Your loins girded, meaning ready for battle. Your sword, you know, strapped to your hip. Your sandals on your feet because in the house you didn't wear shoes in general. And your staff in your hand, meaning your your Samsonite luggage is packed, your carry on is right beside you, ready to go, and you shall eat it. Viva Zornberg spends a lot of time on this word. Bechipazon, in haste, it is a Passover offering to Yudhe Vove. She goes on to say, Chipazon is not just haste, it has a panicked flavor to it in her. Rendering of this word and her looking at where this word comes from and how it's used in other places, she says chipazon is more than just fast. It's more than you're just wolfing down your food. It's it's got this sense of underlying panic behind it, right? So this night is not a night of hanging out the way we do around the seder table. This is exactly not that. This is exactly you're getting ready to go out of here, and it is not going to be pleasant. Right. This is not a vacation you're going on. And we know a lot of us complain about, right, traveling for vacation and how a pain it can be. Um, this is way worse for them. Avarti, And I will pass right the Eretz through the land of Egypt on that night and strike down every forced born in the land of Egypt, both man and beast and i will mete out punishments to all the gods of egypt ani adonai i am yhwh and the blood on the houses where you are staying who is it a sign for it shall be a sign for you this is critically important for the rabbis it is not that god doesn't have a gps and knows where all the israelite houses are in and amongst the egyptian houses God knows where the Israelites live. God has a full list of their addresses. This is a sign for you. This is a sign to you, Israelites, that you have opted in to this commandment, that you have opted into the idea that Congress will change. You are opting into the idea that is very hard to believe right now that Yudhe Vaveh is going to reign supreme. Pharaoh will will uh acquiesce, and you will escape Egypt. You will no longer be slaves. Uh, You will leave your taskmasters behind. You will put this blood as a sign for you, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Here's that word. Pesach, without the dagesh, it's a fey. Right? So fasachti, I will leap over. And again, Zornberg talks about this as an ungainly act. This is not like a graceful swan dive over the houses of the Israelites. It is a kind of ungainly jumping, leaping, stepping over the houses of the Israelites, so that no plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This will be a day of remembrance for you. You will make this day forever a Chag, a festival to yud Vavhe. You shall celebrate it as an institution for all time. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the very first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day to the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So this is Chag HaMatzot, the festival of matzah. Uh-oh. Um... This is the festival of Matzah. We're going to have a sacred occasion on the first day and a sacred occasion on the seventh day. Um, the, no work shall be done on those days. Only what every person is to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your ranks out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe this day throughout the ages as an institution for all time. And in the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread till the 21st day. No leavening shall be found in your house. Blah, 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 blah. So we get the Pesach and we get the we get the Pesach offering and we get Chag HaMatzot. We've talked about this in previous years. Please uh, reference my other um, Shirim if you want to know more about that business, which is Um, that these are two festivals that are put together, the, the lambing festival of the spring and the festival of new grain. And the new grain harvest would have been the wheat harvest. So if you're only using new grain, you do not have sourdough. You do not have starter. So you do not have leavening. You don't have a leavening agent. If you're using only new grain, it is unleavened matzah. That would have been an agrarian festival that lasted for seven days. And then you have the lambing festival, which was the semi-nomadic pastoralists celebrating their spring lambing festival. Those get put together because Israel is a combination of the the agrarian, and the semi festivals. So those come together in what we then know as our uh, eight-day festival of uh, what we call Pesach, right? Okay. So let me see. First of all, is there anything that I need to address that people just needed to say in the chat? Amy, can, can I ask a question about Pharaoh? If, if God hard... If God hardened Pharaoh's heart, how can we blame Pharaoh for any of this? So you should all know that Bert asks this question every time. He's not asking it for himself. He's asking it for y'all. Because he knows someone wants to ask it and won't. So, um, all right. So we will hang on to that question for a second. Because that's kind of a big one. Um, okay. So, So the... The issue of hardening the heart it becomes a very, um, it becomes a problem for the rabbis, right? Because they have to, of course, defend God uh, in, in all of these situations in all of these texts, and so they go to great lengths to do that. The short answer is that the rabbis write that God helps people go the direction they're going, and that Pharaoh makes it obvious he's bec- he's committed. To egotism. He's committed to um, power plays. He's committed to it being about his reputation and about how he appears. Um, he needs to appear all powerful. And so he, he he's not interested in letting the Israelites go. He's not interested in making life fair or okay for his people. He's interested only in this battle with the prophet of Yudhe Vafe. That is all Pharaoh's interested in. And as Pharaoh makes that clear, then his yatzer, his inclination towards that only gets stronger. So um, we can look at Mark Margolius, who has a bit to say about this. Pharaoh's actions appear increasingly controlled by his yatzer harah, his fear-based, self-protective, and self-aggrandizing impulses. His fears lead him down a path which appears delusional and self-destructive, even to sympathetic but alarmed observers. When Moses and Aaron announced the coming of the eighth plague, Pharaoh's advisors, alarmed by his blindness, desperately appealed to him to recognize and yield to reality. This is what I quoted earlier. Do you not realize that Egypt is lost? And then... um, A little further down, he quotes Rob Dressler here. And then he says, for Rob Dressler, we are free to choose only when we are rooted in reality, in truth. When we can see clearly what is actually happening within and around us, our mind unclouded by denial or rationalization, which is another kind of falsehood. Many decisions we might consider freely chosen may actually reflect entrenched habits shaped by unconscious forces and ingrained over time. The moment of Bechira occurs when we wake up to truths to which until now we have been blind. Clearly for Pharaoh, there is no such awareness and therefore no Bechira, no choice. His fear-based habits of mind and heart have gradually robbed him of the capacity to choose. The heart's inclination to harden itself is not always or necessarily problematic. Our instinct to contract can serve an essential protective function. Every heart needs to constrict in order to pump blood and requires the protection of the rib cage. Hardening the heart becomes problematic when it becomes subsumed by its own energy when we are confused in our mind and led astray by false fear, disproportionate to the actual threat. This dynamic can lead us into destructive behavioral patterns, which in turn become hardened, reinforced by habit. Eventually the heart can become sclerotic, rigid, unresponsive, unable to open. So without spending too much time in the classical understanding of this, I think what's helpful for me this year is this understanding that, that Rabbi Margolius brings forward, that we often think we have choice. And I know Mark and Ed and all you shrink type folks, um, George, you, you will all agree that we often think we have choice. And what Margolius is bringing forward is often what we think of as choice is actually habitual. We've become habituated to things and we think we're choosing them, but we're not. Choice, the in our uh, language of spiritual midot, spiritual aspects of, of the self, choice can only happen when we're alert and awake and open to truth. So that often what we think of as choices are habitual. I'm choosing to eat this cookie actually I'm habituated to sugar at this time in the afternoon and I get really itchy, which is not me, as you all know, it's Doritos. (laughs) But um, I am habituated to Doritos at this time of the afternoon. And if I don't get that salt and spice right at this time, I get edgy and nudgy because I'm addicted. So what we often think of as choice, I think Margulies is saying, is that our hearts have hardened into habit and that we're not really choosing, we're actually following our yetzer, following our inclination towards something. Then the other thing he talks about is a hardening of the heart is not necessarily problematic. We have to have a certain guarding of the heart to make it through every day. For us to have made it through the last 10 months, people, of what we've been looking at on the screen, I know, Robin, you don't do that, but some of us watch the screen all day long. Um, so those of us who have looked at CNN all day, every day for 10 months and right ahead and see what's happening in the world, we have to have hardened the heart a little bit to make it through this. There's just no way to take in the pain of the world constantly. And I would just say this in general, not just in a pandemic. We can't take in the pain of the world constantly. Hardening the heart enough to to make it through is okay. The heart has to constrict to pump blood. It's protected by the rib cage on purpose. If we didn't have a rib cage and we were so soft and mushy, our kishkas would be punctured all the time by the door handle or the dining room chair. Whatever. Okay, that's how some of us live. Um. So. Um, then we would be just crushed all the time in really important ways. So hard, like John is saying, balancing the hearts, hardening and softening. The problem becomes when we harden out of false fear, is what Margolius is quoting Dressler as saying, that when we overreact. So you can have an immune system that responds by attacking foreign agents. That's a good thing. We know a lot of people die of COVID. Why? Because their immune system is overly reactive. It goes into overdrive. And all that inflammation caused by the immune response is what kills people. So an immune response is good. Some hardening is good. That's how we get through life. Opening and closing, constricting and softening, all of that is necessary it's when we when we have this hardened response that is out of proportion to the actual threat or the actual possibility of damage that is when it becomes sclerotic that's when the heart is so rigid so toughened that you don't that it can no longer soften that is what margolius is saying happens to Pharaoh, that he's so habituated to acting out of this fear of being perceived of as weak, being perceived of as a sucker or a loser, being perceived of as somebody who isn't strong enough to win all the time, that now guides his heart and his thinking and his decisions, not an actual consideration of the actual threat to Egyptians. All right. Anybody have anything that they want to say? You want your children, says Barry, to choose good over evil, not because they are afraid of punishment. Right. Right. You want them to have the freedom of the aspect of choosing. And because that is where we get strong. Habits are not strength. Habits are habits. Um, Right. Strength comes from making a choice and then living with the consequences of that choice. Sometimes I make a good choice and sometimes I make a bad choice, but if I don't make it out of freedom and truth and a response to the facts as they are and a balanced nuanced understanding of the real threats and the real opportunities, then it's not freedom of choice. It's something else. It's reactivity. It's habit. You know, it's, um, whatever fear can blind. Absolutely. That seems to be, the teaching here is that Pharaoh is blind to the actual situation out of fear that anyone who's a power monger, anyone who's that wedded to their being perceived as strong are absolutely among the weakest personalities out there. Oh, George, go for it. And then Susan. Cannot the same thing be said about God, in the way he's, uh, she is represented in this section, that uh, the Lord has said, "I have hardened his heart." These interpretations take all the power away from God, and God, it seems to me, is acting the same way that Pharaoh is to protect his power and show it to everybody. Okay. So God is acting and behaving like Pharaoh here. Okay. Susan? Um, well, it, was, it was just that for the first time ever, um, studying with Daniel yesterday, we noticed that it's either the first four or five plagues before God hardens Pharaoh's heart. God does not do this in the first plagues. And then Pharaoh says, like, after, like, okay, I'll let him go. And then he keeps changing his mind. And it so that changed my understanding of the hardening of the heart because it didn't happen. Pharaoh had the chance to let the people go without a hardened heart. I'm a little confused. Um, the rabbis point to the fact that, yes, the first five times it's Pharaoh yeah. doing it. The second times it's God. And they said Pharaoh picked often enough the direction of a strengthening is used in the first instances. Hardening is later. That that it's that it is Pharaoh who who strengthens his own heart against uh, mm-hmm. this uh, idea of letting the Israelites go, and then God steps in to help that along because because Pharaoh's clearly chosen his path. Yeah. So that just that just changed my feeling. It's like if you're dealing with someone, and, and five times you make them a really good offer. What's going to happen the sixth? That's all. So that is uh that is how the rabbis read it as well, but I think George would say well, it doesn't change anything. God is still acting the tough guy here and saying I'm going to take away your ability to actually choose to do something differently, even if it's cuz you did it five times, right? Then but but the minute I step in and do it, then then aren't I playing the same game? Um, Pam, that's what I just said. So the first five times, it's strong. The second five times, it's hard. One is Chazak. One is about a hardened heart. Barry, you have your hand up? Yeah. Um, I wanted to say that uh, strengthening the heart is actually being fair to Pharaoh. Once you get punished, your heart is weakened. Your spirit is weakened. And you make a choice. But not based on real choice, but based out of fear. And, and Pharaoh's psychotherapy here is giving him a chance to overcome his, so he, uh, God must strengthen his heart to get, to get him to the, to the equilibrium where he can make this choice. But after five times that he got strengthened and could make that choice, he didn't, then it's too late. And now it's time to uh, carry through your sentence. This is very much how the rabbis understand it. Because again, they they need to defend um, God who, like George has lifted up, looks like kind of a bad guy here. Um, all right. I'm interested in what Mark is saying. So Mark, I may have to ask you to translate that into English. What is essential here is not only psychotic defenses that interfere with reality testing, but also a corruption of introceptive morality testing. Does this mean that it's not just that he's psychotic in terms of being able to tell what's out there and responding appropriately, but also his own internal capacity to measure what is right and ethical? I'm a little confused, Mark, but it sounds very smart. So wait, but you got to unmute because we want to hear you. Yes, exactly. That, uh, that the uh, capacity for uh, being in touch with reality uh, involves also the capacity to evaluate more, uh, uh, the um, meaning, so to speak, of uh, reality, uh, so that uh, one's internal sense uh, of uh, uh, the uh, the consequences, the the import of one's actions. Are as much a part of reality testing as external perception of the outside world. And, and for the rabbis and for George, our character, God, um, the assessment, the diagnosis is that, that Pharaoh has chosen uh, in some way and maybe it's because he he is unable because of the way he was raised, who knows, but like he, that he, he's turned away from the commitment to doing that work, right. Of a more, or either he doesn't have the capacity or he's chosen not to exercise it, that he's, he's unwilling to confront the moral implications of his behavior and, and refuses to deal with it. And so the consequence is of course, The suffering of his people, because that's always what happens, isn't it? When a leader, when a leader acts out out, or or refuses to act out of that kind of um, commitment. Um, All right. So Susan says, you never had to deal with my mother-in-law, my (laughs) in-laws, right? (laughs) That's absolutely true. Okay. So we all know sometimes you have to harden your heart just to sit down at the Passover Seder table. All right. Um, okay, so I want to look a little bit at um Yitz Greenberg, who uh talks about which I hadn't really thought about. He talks about the power of um this being the first commandment, the calendar being the first commandment. So he says, Well, what is the first commandment? If you read the Torah and it's plain, meaning the first instruction to the Israelites is in the third verse of that we read to set aside a one-year-old lamb on the 10th of Nisan and slaughter it on the 14th. But the rabbis in the oral Torah, the rabbinic tradition of interpretation, the first commandment is found in the second verse. This month is the beginning of all the months. The first month of the months of the year right? So what is it talking about? It's talking about holy time. Like I mentioned, Shabbat is built into creation, but this instruction, right, has more than a functional purpose. The holidays are holy days. Behaviors on these days are markedly different than on regular days. On the 15th day of Nisan, bread, which is eaten all year long, becomes absolutely prohibited and remains that way for seven days. Matzah A standard food year-round becomes sacred and elevated to a mitzvah. By moving up the, the first of the month by a day or delaying it for a day, the court is turning a normal day into a holy day and vice versa. Right. So the court decides when the new moon happens, and therefore it is the court which is deciding what is a holy day and what is not a holy day. But the rabbi's answer is Judaism is a covenant partnership in which the human partner plays a central, even authoritative role. It is the earthly court which decides that Yom Kippur will occur on Tuesday, not Wednesday, thereby endowing the 10th day of Tishrei with sacred character requiring life-altering behaviors and extended prayers. Their decision creates the 24 hours of special closeness to God when the Shekhinah is nigh and receptive to human repentance and piety. So Yitz Greenberg is suggesting that by giving the people Israel the lunar calendar here, God is moving out of being the one who makes time sacred into a relationship with human beings where human beings will decide what is the first day of the month and when is Yom Kippur? Is it on Tuesday or is it on Wednesday? And it is a completely community life altering decision Tuesday or Wednesday. Your whole life changes on Yom Kippur. Well, for some of us some of us, it changes that whole month, but that's a whole other thing. So the whole idea is that, that it moves from God being the only decider of sacred time to God being a partner with the people Israel and having the people Israel in their courts declare that this is now the new moon. This is now officially the month of Nisan. Therefore, if Nisan starts right now, then the 14th day of Nisan, when all of this needs to happen, is is 14 days from then, and so that it is a human-divine partnership. That time becomes a human-divine uh, encounter, a human-divine uh, endeavor, a project that that the people of Israel do together with God, um, which I think is a – and Yitz Greenberg is very big on covenant theology, right, that his whole idea is that it is a sacred partnership and that it begins here that it begins now, right at the formation of the people Israel becoming a nation, right? They've just been hanging out as slaves. They're going to be freed now. They're going to become a nation um, because other people are going to go with them. It's a mixed multitude that goes out of Egypt, if you'll recall. So some people join the Israelites and leave with the Israelites from the beginning. It is not just Genetically through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, a mixed multitude, and Erev Rav goes out of Egypt. And so so this is when they become a people. This is when they become a nation, is at this moment of Exodus. And what Yitz Greenberg wants to lift up is from the very beginning, from this very moment of then becoming a people, God moves into partnership. God moves into covenant, even before Sinai that the fact that this is the first commandment, you will decide in your courts, according to the oral Torah, that's why this is the first commandment, because we will decide in the court when the new month happens. And that means that sacred time now uh, is a combination of a partnership between God and the people of Israel. All right. So I I was thinking about um, Zornberg's Uh, imagery of this night this night of Pesach and for the first time it really it I I was talking okay let me start over I was talking to Judy last night on the phone and I was talking about one of our friends one of our close friends who lives here in the Palisades and I was saying I just have noticed that she's just shorter and and harder and and less, more edgy and it's been happening slowly. And I think part of it is cause she's been home and she's been isolated. And I said, but it's it's becoming hurtful to me. And Judy said, you use the right word. It's, she's become hard and it's in this withdrawing from the project of, I don't know, whatever it is we all usually do, right? In this withdrawal from that project in being alone and being isolated and dealing with anxiety and dealing with the threat of illness and dealing with being cut off from, I think just hugs and greetings and normal kinds of interactions. It's like we get cut off from a part of ourselves that has the capacity to remain flexible and remain responsive. And it's the first time I've thought of hardening the heart that way that that it's kind of what Margolius was was talking about, it, but not just not just the big level of the ways we're all habituated, the damage that we've all sustained from childhood. I, I'm not talking about the big ones. I'm talking about this. Um, David Russo, look at the increased suicide rate. Yeah, like I, I feel like this this year I'm reading this text a little bit differently. Like this year I'm very aware of the hardening of the heart that comes just in as a result of not touching others hearts, of not being exposed to others hearts. And I don't think I ever really, really got that until quarantine, you know, until the pandemic. And I know that I'm just learning some things that other people have known, because maybe they live alone. And maybe they've been very disappointed losing a spouse early or losing to divorce or losing children, God forbid, which I know some of you have. And I just—it's just the first year that I became really aware of this of this hardening of the heart that comes in response to to lots of things, right? That, that can happen um, to us as human beings, and and I had this image of the night of um, the night of death. And we've talked about it before, but again, I appreciated it, just the tableau of that a little differently this year, right? Marking the, the doorposts with blood or sanitizer to keep the destroyer out of your house. And just this, this notion, you know, just this, this image of death being everywhere and the Israelites, right, desperately doing something at the doorway to try to keep death out of their house, um and what that does, like yeah, the existential anxiety of that, and they lived it one night, <laughs> and like, so I just kind of feel like we've been looking out of a blood covered doorway for ten months, right, each of us trying desperately to keep. Um, to keep the destroyer at bay, and the rabbis say, Why did they have to do that? Because once the destroyer is unleashed, the destroyer doesn 't know the difference between the houses of the Israelites and the houses of the Egyptians. The destruction is absolutely egalitarian that, right that, so the this idea that the the blood is something that keeps the destroyer that would kill everybody from coming into this particular house and i and i just related in in that tableau i just related so clearly to this sense that yeah that's what we've been doing for 10 months we've been on this side of a blood-covered doorway praying Mm -hmm. with all we have that the destroyer doesn't come in to our house and um and this is the second time that I've had it breached. One is, you know, this time with Ellie, that COVID did come into our house. Thank God, you know, we, me and Judy tested negative and we got her out in time, but, but like the destroyer made it over the doorway and the other time, which feels like a real violation and a failure and all of that. Um, and the other time, of course, as many of you know, my father died second Seder. So first Seder was at his hospice bed. Um, as we celebrated the holiday of Psach, of the the destroyer, the angel of death, passing over the houses of the Israelites, of course, the angel of death settled down on the other side of the bed and stayed. And my father was dead in the middle of the night, second Seder. So for me, it complicates (laughs) Passover a little bit um, for the rest of my life, but also but also opens me to that awareness that even as we celebrate what we have, even as we celebrate, whether it's Rosh Hashanah, a new year, whether it's Pesach, you know, that we made it through another year and we're at the time of rebirth again and we're free and we have the rights and responsibilities of free citizens, even as we celebrate all of that, to know that there are people that the destroyer got in, that, that love people who didn't get another year this Rosh Hashanah, who instead got a diagnosis who instead are walking somebody through the end or are completely alone for whatever reason. And so um, in that sense, I guess it has softened my heart somewhat uh, to have had Passover changed forever um, for me, but um, that it helps us, especially at this time, remember that there are, there are so many people that couldn't stay on their side of the blood covered doorway. They had no choice right they 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 make sure our groceries are on the shelves they make sure that our teeth get cleaned they make sure that our blood is drawn for some kind of test or right that they run the ct machine when we're in pain and they need to find out what's wrong with us so um so anyway i'm just i'm i'm rambling i understand that i'm rambling um but there there was just a whole new set of associations for me with um with these images and with this with these symbols Ed is saying, I think it's the combined effect of the Trump administration and COVID, not COVID alone, that creates the hardening. And for me, it was more the former than the latter. I could feel the softening while watching the inauguration of Biden, right? So um, for many of us, I don't know about, but some of you, like, I wept like, like a flipping baby. And it's like, what is going on? It's an inauguration for crying out loud. Like, Really? Weeping like a baby, and it's just like I realized it is the first time my heart has responded to patriotic music for four years. It is the first time a military band started playing, and I was like tapping my feet. Those drums were going, and I'm like, yes, 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 and it's like, wow, right? I did. I hadn't realized that I was cut off from responding to all of those normal, um, you know, patriotic expressions. And I was completely cut off from responding to them for four years. And not only cut off, but like, I was like, turn it off. Like I can't even watch it. And like this, as the tears just rolled this time, um, yes, there was a softening that came immediately also about not feeling like I had to turn on the television to see what the heck was happening now. Um, Amanda Gorman, magical, stunning. Yes, Alexandra. um, I'm planning to read her poem uh, as part of Friday Night Services, um, because I think it was just so incredibly, fantastically beautiful. uh, since I'm new to this, I'm confused. If this is laying out Passover, why is it celebrated later down the road? And why is the new year in the fall? Right. So that's why Zornberg spends so much time saying it's a little odd that we get this commandment to keep Pesach before Pesach happens, right? That it's the narrative of Pesach that that is what uh, already obligates the Israelites to this observance. It's the narrative, not the event itself. So I'll let you, Alexandra, sit with that and and see what you think it means. Um, My Israeli friends are bad-mouthing Biden as we converse. Still, we struggle, right? So, right. Um, For one, not his friend. So, not this friend. Good, Barry. Barry's not bad-mouthing Biden. Um, But, right. So if you're a one-issue voter, right, then you're only response is going to be to that person's like policy on that one issue. And so there's plenty of room if you want to badmouth Biden about Israel, go ahead. That's that's fine. If that's all you care about, sure, you can you can criticize this policy on Israel, but but we're not one issue voters, right? So to those Israelis, I'm like, fine, that's your one issue, fine. But I'm an American. Sorry, I'm not really interested in your opinion about Biden. Thank you very much. Any more than I was interested in your feelings about Trump. Thank you very much. If you're a one-issue voter, that's all you care about. That's fine. But don't talk to me. I'm the one who has to live with vaccine policies and healthcare policies and joining the World Health Organization and rejoining the Paris Climate Accord. Like There's way more we got going on than America's relationship to Israel. And guess what, people? It's going to be just fine. Right? The biden administration is going to be just fine. OK, now, David, we're going to have a problem now. I'm an American Jew, not a Jewish American. We're going to have a problem now because Kaplan would say that is a silly distinction. Am I more brunette or more female? Am I more blue eyed or Caucasian? That that this is a trap we fall into. Are you a Jewish American or an American Jew? We are both. We are absolutely equally both. We are American Jews. We are Jewish Americans and that we get pulled into a trap when we feel like we have to put one identity over the other. Certain situations obviously call forth my loyalty um, on, call for me to do action around one part of my identity more than the other. Absolutely. Around the high holidays, I'm just a Jew. <laughs> like, like I'm a professional Jew at the high holidays, right? Then it, Obviously, that identity comes more to the fore. But talk to me on the 4th of July. You've seen me in the parade. So um, right then, I am whole, like I'm a happy American citizen participating in, in, in the patriotic celebration of our freedoms and blah, 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 blah. So it's not that one part of my identity doesn't come forward more sometimes than another. When I'm voting, I'm voting as an American. But I'm vo- voting as a Jewish American. Right. So um, so I think just sometimes we and this is this is when I get a little nuts about um, the Israeli American thing. Also, is that somehow like and and with Americans, I don't mean Israelis, I get crazy with Americans like who want to make Israel the only issue. It's like, what what kind of an American are you like? What that is not that is not Jewish values. (laughs) right, is to say it's only about America's policy towards Israel. I remember getting criticized in Duluth because I wouldn't go to a night to honor Israel and be on the stage when they had a general coming from Israel to talk about how great Israel is. It's a general from Israel, rabbi. I'm like, yeah, who put this evening on? Evangelical Christians. Their whole mission is to convert Jews. And you're going to use a night to Israel uh, to honor Israel as a way to fire up your evangelical base and come after the Jews. Well, guess what? That is where my mission as an American rabbi slams right up against my commitment to Israel and Zionism. Boom. There it was. And it's like, I can't. I'm an American professional Jew whose job is to try to preserve American progressive Judaism. I will not be on the stage at an evangelical Christian event honoring Israel. The the hate mail I got from some of my congregants, you would not believe. That's that's what I get nuts, right? It's, It's like, really, people? Really? Oh, my God. Yeah. Hate mail from my congregants who were one issue people, how could I not be on the stage with a general raising money for Israel? And I said, how can you ask me to fundraise with an organization that's looking to destroy progressive Judaism? I I can't do it. Anything anything in closing that people want to say? We are we we have the vaccine, God willing, around the corner. So like, I feel like where we're getting, we're getting there. So we've had, we've had a change of administration when hopefully that's going to result in a change in the actual uh, availability of us getting the vaccine. And so I think this this business of Pesach, of the Exodus, of leaving Egypt is like so appropriate right now. And, but, 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 but where are we in our reading of this? We are right at that moment with death everywhere and them waiting. And that's the moment Zornberg wants us to hold, right? That there is death everywhere. They are looking through that bloodied portal and they can't go anywhere. They are eating the paschal offering. Before they leave slavery, they are eating the promise of redemption of from slavery, even as they are stuck as slaves in their homes. And I feel like that is kind of the existential moment that we are in. It is the perfect Torah reading. The perfect imagery uh, is that we're in Hipazon. We all feel like we all feel this 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 pressure, this rush, this push to be free of this and it ain't happening yet right we have to hang on and eat the paschal lamb even uh as we remain in our homes even as we remain uh stuck uh in the narrow places in the places that are tsar that are feel constrictive and and pressing in on us like we that's when we have to eat the paschal lamb people after this it'll be a remembrance of leaving Egypt, but not not the first one. Not the first Pesach. The first Pesach was eaten before that materialized, before that came to be. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kahil at Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website www.ourki.org.